what the book of Malachi becomes is a wake-up call for renewed fidelity to the Lord Almighty. Really, in many ways, the book of Malachi becomes a call for repentance with the desire of the Lord for restoration with his people. And in the end, the Lord really says to his people, and this is taken right out of Malachi 3, he says, return to me, and I will return to you. Hello, loved ones, and welcome back to Live in the Light. And in our studio today, at the beginning of a brand new series, is our teacher, Pastor Robbie Simons. And Robbie, I'm going to turn it over to you right away so you can fill in our listeners on where we're headed to next. All right, so wasting no time today, we are entering into a series on one of the minor prophets, none other than the book of Malachi. I wonder how much you know about this book. It is a powerful little book that God has used in so many ways over so many centuries, and we pray that continues right now. The real key theme of this book is God is calling back the hearts of his people. He wants to restore them. He wants to see them repent. He wants them to see them ultimately return to him because there's no better place than where they can be than right nestled up with the Lord Almighty. Let me ask you a question today. Where do you find yourself? Have you wandered away from the Lord? Would you say that your affections for him are maybe dull, maybe a little bit uh, warm or not even that? Then this series is for you. It's amazing how God's word hits so many different topics in just a few pages. This is what we're in for on this series on Malachi, again, called Return to Me, because that's what the Lord says. And he says it to us right now, maybe to you right now too. God says, return to me, and then I will return to you. So really expecting for what God's gonna do and how he's gonna use this series. And so let's get our Bibles open if we can, or let's listen in with great clarity and eagerness to the word of God before us today. Okay, exciting stuff. And just a reminder that if you'd like to get a copy of today's message, or if you'd like to pick up a copy of a message maybe you'll miss over the next couple of weeks, then please make sure and visit us online at liveinthelight.ca. Or you can phone us up at 1-844-22-LIGHT. All right, here again is Robbie, this time in Malachi chapter one with today's message entitled, I Have Loved You. Let's get our Bibles open to the book of Malachi. Malachi, of course, is the last book in the Old Testament. A short book, but a powerful book. But allow me, though, to review some of this context for us as we begin this new series together. So as we open up Malachi, we understand that God's people have returned from captivity in Babylon And as they returned from captivity in Babylon, they also returned with great expectations of hope. Why did they have hope? Well, hope was held in the promises of God's restoration and renewal 
of God's people. They were subject to captivity under foreign rule. Life was extremely hard, so they expected as they were released from this, then all the blessings that they imagined from the Lord would be restored to them again as God's people. Now, this included the rebuilding of the temple and the expectation of messianic rule. Uh, two of probably the greatest things that Israel could ever imagine. But to the great disappointment of the people, the temple was rebuilt, but it was much inferior to the previous temple. To the point where when the older generation saw the foundations of the temple being built, they knew the foundations of the previous temple when they saw the new foundations and its size or lack thereof, Ezra 3 tells us they broke down and wept. They actually wept over the reality this new temple was so much inferior to the one they had previously known. The newer generation was shouting with joy and the Bible says in Ezra 3, you couldn't really distinguish between the weeping and the rejoicing of what was before them. Such a mixture of emotions happening upon God's people. Also, the anticipated blessings of the presence and the prosperity of God in Malachi's day were greatly lacking. Instead, God's people found themselves in a form of poverty, in pestilence, and tremendous foreign pressure all around them. So once again, what you have as we turn to Malachi is a serious case of unmet expectations. And God's people were not handling it well at all. Again, what might have been the greatest disappointment among the people of God was the apparent spiritual destitution among them. What do we mean by that? The presence of God seemed very distant. Malachi 3 implies that the Spirit of God was not dwelling in any powerful form in the temple itself. So the presence of God the life-giving presence of Yahweh Almighty God was nowhere to be found. So right here, loved ones, right here, we see a fork in the road for the Jewish people. And I might add, right here for us as well, in our context, in our lives, we also find ourselves at a fork in the road. See, what do you mean by that? When you're disappointed, when you feel let down, when your expectations are unmet in terms of what you think God should do for you, when God seems distant, when he feels like he's not drawn close, here's the question, what do you do? What's our response when life goes as not as expected? Where do you go in times like this? Now, the answer to that question can often define a life. How we respond in life when God seems far away, when our expectations aren't being met, literally how we can respond can often define a life. At the very least, it can define, define a season of our lives. What the nation of Israel did in the midst of these unmet expectations is they began to languish in their unfulfilled hope. They became hard-hearted. They became indifferent. They were lulled into a spiritual sleep 
with a very casual and low regard for God. As one commentator said about Malachi's time, he says, God's people may have been free from blatant idolatry, but theirs had become a dead orthodoxy. Meaning, they had a form of religion before God, but they had no real relationship with God. So there was head knowledge, there was no devotion. There was no reverence. There was no joy. There was no true adoration. Sure, they came to church, but they slouched in the chair. If you're slouching, it's a chance to sit up now, right? Sure, they heard the songs, but they hardly sang. Sure, they sat through the sermon, but there was no heart change. They were hearers, not doers. Sure, they passed the offering by, but there was no generosity or sacrifice and giving from their lives. So therefore, what the book of Malachi becomes is a wake-up call for renewed fidelity to the Lord Almighty. Really, in many ways, the book of Malachi becomes a call for repentance with the desire of the Lord for restoration with his people. And in the end, the Lord really says to his people, and this is taken right out of Malachi 3, he says, return to me and I will return to you. That's what our whole series is going to be titled from that verse in Malachi 3.7. Return to me, says the Lord, and I will return to you. So this is the all-important context of the book of Malachi that we start right now. Let me ask you, as we start this series, where do you find yourself? How's your heart doing? Has your passion grown cold? Are you in a place of distraction? Are you like me that you find every day you live in this crazy world, the number of distractions that are trying to pull you away from the center of love in the Lord Jesus Christ seem to be countless? Are you discouraged? Are you fighting the feelings of discouragement as it relates to your relationship with the Lord? Are you disillusioned? Are you confused right now? Are you wondering what in the world is going on? Is your heart divided? Is there division in your heart right now? Yeah, there's some desire for the Lord, but if truth be told, there's a lot of desire for things other than the Lord. And if I'm going to be honest with myself right now, you might be saying, I have a divided heart for sure. My affection's kind of with God, but it's really a lot with the world itself. This was God's people. This is the context of Malachi. You know, the line of the hymn that has always got me is, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. So loved ones, this will always be the challenge of our hearts. What? To stay at the center, the center of the Lord Jesus Christ. This will always be the challenge of our church keeping Jesus Christ at the center. And you know what? I love this. That's why God brings series like Malachi into our lives right now. It's not coincidence. He is a sovereign God. He makes no mistakes. And so right now he brings this book into your heart and mine because ultimately he says this, return to me and I will return to you.
Every single person hearing this right now, there's some aspect of your life and mine that needs to return to the Lord. If you sit here right now and you think that you got it all going on for the Lord and there's nothing you need to fix or turn, oh my, let's pray, right? Specifically for you, all right? Because this weekend, the Lord is showing me things have to change. And I'm excited about it because I know the ways of God are always the right ways and the ways of Robbie are always wrong. So therefore, Lord, do what you will, because as much as it might hurt, the healing and the power and the restoration will be the greatest thing that I could ever have and need for where I am right now. So loved ones, I hope you sense right now even, and I love you so much. I love you so much. I love this church so much. I hope you sense maybe even right now that God wants to do something significant through this series in your life, in your marriage, in your family, in your friendships, but in your heart. And so I'll pray, but pray with me. Pray with me. I don't pray now because it's the thing you do when you're ready to read the scripture formally. I pray now because without Jesus Christ, we're dead. I pray now because he's the only one who can change hearts. Maybe we just want to humble ourselves a little more than normal, bowing our heads, holding our hands open in a posture. God, would you help me right now? Maybe you want to just crouch a little bit lower, whatever it is. Let's just take a moment to pray together. Father, thank you for the book of Malachi. Thank you for the message within it. Thank you for the love that you desire to extend to your people. And I pray in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, right now, you will take this word and in this season and series, and you will ignite in your church, Lord, a passion and resolve to be right with God. Oh, Lord, I pray you will speak to every single heart, every single heart, Lord, a message for them. You have spoken to me, and I pray you will not stop. You will draw me closer and closer to you, for your ways are the right ways. Your ways are perfect and pure. There is none like you, none more satisfying than you. So I pray, Lord, if you need to correct, correct. If you need to rebuke, rebuke. If you need to reprove, reprove, because all of that will lead to encouragement. And ultimately, it's your love upon our lives. Every man, every woman, every child, speak, O Lord, and I pray you hear from us. Your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, if you agree, you can say amen. amen. Malachi chapter 1, verse 1, just verse by verse. Here we go. Are you excited? I hope you're excited. Malachi 1, verse 1 says, and we're just going to read the first verse for a second. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Notice right from the beginning, okay? Notice what God's word is saying to us from God. He's saying this, this is not a word of man. This is not Malachi jotting down some good ideas and hoping to share with a few people who might want to listen. No, this is a message from God to his people. It says right in verse one, a word from the Lord. That's clear. Do you see the word oracle in verse one? The word oracle can be a message. It can also be translated though, and some translations have this as a burden. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. Burden meaning um, urgency. Um, seriousness to this message. So notice here, the Lord Almighty has a word. Why? Because he is burdened 
to deliver it to his people. Now, let's just take a time out there for a second. Notice this, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, okay? We're learning right there. The Lord cares for us so much. Why? Why does he care for us? How does he care for us? He speaks to us. He sends his word into the midst of his people because he loves them. He gives his word in the midst of this church right now because he loves us. If he didn't love us, he would cease to speak to us. But he does love us. So he tells us what we need to hear, even if it hurts. Because in the end, when he hurts us, he loves us and hurts us to heal us because his ways are best. He cares for us so much. Notice also in verse one, notice the name Malachi. Malachi means literally my messenger or perhaps the messenger of the Lord. Either way, the intention is very clear. The Lord has an urgent message for his people that must be heard. And so we desire to hear it. Now let's just take a moment here and let's just step back just far enough to understand, consider how important then God's word is that we endure and are strengthened in this life. God says, you need to hear a word from me because you need to be corrected. You need to be loved. You need to be strengthened. And my word does that in your life. Consider then how important God's word, the Holy Bible is for your life and mine and for this church. God gives us his word. It's so critical because his word, loved ones, is his voice. If we don't have his word in our lives, we don't hear his voice. If we don't hear his voice, I don't like your chances. But you saturate yourself with the word of God. You desire to hear his oracle. You want to know the word of the Lord. You desire to hear from his messenger, Malachi in this case. And that is the life that is about to be directed by the perfect, sovereign, awesome God Almighty. Let's consider then the portion that we're going to see of this urgent message this first weekend. Verse 2. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? That's Israel speaking back to God. How have you loved us, God? God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Verse 5. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So we see from the very beginning of this prophetic book, God's intention is love for his people. Right in verse two, I have loved you, says the Lord. In fact, this becomes the deliberate heart behind this book. And very specifically in the first five verses. 
Now we can be tempted in verse two to read that statement in the past tense alone. I have loved you. But the real meaning of that phrase in the Hebrew is I have loved you, I do love you, and I will love you. Because God's love is perfectly uh, in the past, perfectly present, and perfectly future. Notice it's the unconditional love that starts with God's people. The love that cannot fail, the love that will not end, a love that will not be removed, a love that cannot be separated from us as new covenant believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. But the question is, God says, I have loved you. I have loved you perfectly. My love will never be separated from you. You are my chosen people. Here's the question, do you believe it? Do you believe the reality of the truth of God's love? Because what we find here as we enter into Malachi is God's people didn't really believe it. They were struggling to believe in the true love of God. The people of God, in fact, began to question the love of God. And this takes us to our first point then, which is this, point number one. We will be tempted to question God's love. We will be tempted to question God's love. Look at verse two again. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, the question that Israel asks back to God Almighty reveals the heart of of God's people. It also reveals the sickness that dwelt within. Consider what's happening here. The very fact that they ask back that question, God says, I love you. And they say, oh yeah, how have you loved us? The very fact they ask that question, they are placing themselves on the same plane as God. They are challenging God's character and God's faithfulness. By the very implication of the question, they are actually accusing God of neglect and mistreatment. How have you loved us, God? Have you loved us really? Can you tell us how you've loved us? Because we don't feel like we've been so loved. Now, why would they ask such a question? What caused such a blatant retort in the very face of God? The answer is this. The reason they question God's love, ready, listen, this is huge, is because God had not blessed them in the way that they expected or desired. God was not meeting their expectations. What were they looking for? Here's fundamentally when Israel turned from Babylon and they were rebuilding the temple and trying to form a nation again, here's what they really longed for. They wanted prosperity, they wanted riches. They wanted worldly power and worldly glory. They were desiring the temporal, external blessing of God. And when it did not come to them in the way that they expected, they then fired back and they accused God of not loving them the way that they think he should. How have you loved us, O God? Now just pause for a second. And think about the question Israel's asking. And just think about how that question can often be found on the heart of God's people 
today. I suggest to you, it would rarely be spoken. There would rarely be a time where you openly would say, God, have you really loved me? How have you loved me? Show me. I think often in our minds and maybe in our hearts, there's the voice that is heard within us saying, have you really loved me, God? Show me how have you. I don't feel that you've met my expectations. And I feel that I've been let down by you, God. Have you really loved me? Because when life doesn't go as planned, when finances don't prosper as expected, when trials don't disappear as prayed for, when health is not healed as desired, when my relationships don't work out, when crisis erupts suddenly, when my dreams are unrealized, when culture is crumbling, when the church is weakening, it's here that the voice can begin to whisper up from my soul, how have you loved me, God? And some of us here right now in this room have been asking that very question. Now, what's so critical here is the people of God are basing God's love on their own standard of measurement. The people of God are playing judge and jury over God. Their problem is that their vision is so nearsighted. Their hearts are so hardened. Their minds are so clouded. They expect God's love to fit into their man-made box, into their own defined limitations, into their own classification. When you really, really think about it, the arrogance and the presumption of God's people accusing God of this in this way is staggering. And that arrogance and presumption is one of the great indictments of the church, or at least of our day today. Human beings point the finger of God and say, who do you think you are? And how could you do this? And you said you would. James Boyce says it very well this way. He says this, perhaps more than any other Old Testament book, Malachi describes that modern attitude of mind that considers man superior to God and that has the audacity to attempt to bring God down to earth and measure him by the yardstick of human morality. This is the world we live in today. We bring God down to our level and somehow we think that he's right where we are and we have the authority and the arrogance to accuse him of such things. This is without a doubt the attitude of our world. It could never be the attitude of the church, not the true church especially regarding the love of God. So we will be tempted to question God's love. But how do we fight this? That takes us to point number two. It's this. We must define God's love on God's terms. We must make sure in our lives we are defining the love of God on God's terms, not our own, because we'll get it wrong. This leads us to the second part of verse two. Look at now. God says, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob. By the way, this is so gracious of God to even respond in this way. So gracious to provide an answer and to show them how much he loves them. Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste to his hill country, left his heritage to jackals in the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, we will rebuild the ruins. The Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Now, verses two and four, you're like, huh? 
all right? Now, admittedly, there's some deep theological content here, but there's also beautiful theological content here. When contemplated properly will result in awe of the love of God. Now, what God does here in reply to the accusations of his lacking love is he compares Jacob with Esau. Jacob representing the nation of Israel or Judah, Esau representing the nation of Edom. God calls here for a spiritual timeout and he essentially says, whoa, 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 wait a minute, wait a minute. You wanna talk about love? You wanna talk about love? Who are my chosen people? Who are the ones I've set apart from birth? Who are the ones who are my recipients of my unending and forever salvation? The power behind what God is saying here is this, that every single Torah-minded Israelite would know this. They would know this. They would know what Jacob did to merit being chosen over Esau. The answer, nothing. Every law, uh, knowledge, Torah-knowing Israelite would know there's nothing Jacob ultimately did to make him better than Esau. It was the sovereign grace and sovereign choice of God Almighty whose ways are higher than our ways. We know that Jacob was chosen when he was in the womb. He was chosen even before he was created. Well, a convicting message today for sure. We encourage you to be praying that God would help you as you choose to pursue him daily in your personal study and in prayer. Need some extra encouragement? Well, we have our previous messages and series available for you to listen online at liveinthelight.ca. Thanks for joining us today. We hope to see you again next time at Live in the Light.